Because Christian faith is not only includes believing certain facts, but importantly, it's also coming to Christ in commitment. As we stand, let's pray. And we'll pray the words of the last verse of our psalm tonight. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're living in uh, confused times. Uh, both uh, intellectually and uh, in terms of moral confusion. There is uh, secular humanism, uh, multi-faithism, uh, extreme Islam, just to uh, name three of today's options that oppose biblical Christianity. So if you're a Christian, you need to know what you think and why. Uh, if you're gonna resist such ideologies and uh, religions. Uh, because of the threats uh, of uh, floods following the events of last June and uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, here in Newcastle. In Jesmond, some houses directly opposite the town Moor are now prepared for more flooding. Similarly, wise Christians should prepare for the subtle seepage of false ideas from these uh, other ideological and religious options uh, and try to prevent them from becoming floods for the sake of uh, individuals, yourself included, and indeed of society. And you do that spiritually as with a house. You make sure your foundations are firm and the defences uh, are secure. Uh, that's why our mission statement to, to Jesmond Parish Church will be helpful in such preparation. It's summarised as godly living, church growth, and uh, changing Britain. And the series on these Sunday evenings is on this mission statement. Uh, for godly living involves trusting Christ and obeying his word. Church growth involves telling the world and uh, serving the church and changing Britain or whatever country you uh, come from involves caring for needs and contending for truth. So this series means checking our foundations and preparing not just defensively but uh, to gain some ground we trust. And tonight, as we think about godly living, our subject is trusting in Christ. And for that, I wanted to consider those words we had read as our first, or second rather, reading, Matthew 11, 25 and 30. So if you could look at that in a Bible now, perhaps share with your neighbour, if you need to do that. It's page 977 of the, uh, of the Pew Bibles. And if you want an outline of where we're going, you've got that on the back of your service sheet, and you can jot any notes there uh, if you want to on that piece of paper at the back of your service sheet with the outline of where we're going. And my headings tonight, as you'll see after some words of introduction, are first, essential facts, secondly, the person of Christ, and thirdly, his invitation. Now, by way of introduction, let me just say two things. One, very short, a former master of University College Durham, Dr. Plummer, in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, said this verse um, in Matthew chapter 11 are, quotes, words addressed to the whole human race throughout all time. And he who understands them, and he's quoting another famous theologian, has found his way to the heart of Christianity. 
I trust you'll see how true that is tonight. Uh, secondly, these five verses are to be seen in contrast to the preceding five verses. Uh, our verses show what it is to trust in Christ. The previous verses have been uh, telling you what it is to reject Christ. For these verses uh, there are saying that even though Christ had performed miracles in certain towns, such as Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, the pe people did not change their thinking at all uh, about Jesus. So Jesus said of Chorazin and Bethsaida, this is verse 22 of chapter 11, I tell you it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The, uh, the luxury and the ruthless cruelty of uh, uh, the business dealings of Tyre and Sidon were proverbial uh, and was bad enough, uh, as was the violence of sexual uh, sin of Sodom, uh, proverbial. But Jesus is saying here, the indifference to him, in spite of all the amazing things he'd said and done uh, in those towns, was far worse. And I don't know why some of you have come tonight. Uh, perhaps uh, it was that uh, someone you liked invited you, or uh, perhaps it's simply to keep someone quiet who's been telling you you ought to go to church for so long that you've decided to do that. Well, whatever the reason, do not be like those people who were simply ignoring Christ after they'd heard and seen what he had done. For someone who has a chance to accept Christ but ignores him is far worse than a dishonest uh, millionaire who uh, ruins the lives of thousands. We've been thinking about that in the media with the collapse of uh, banks through crooked dealing or utterly decadent uh, pagans, uh, bad as he or she, uh, 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 those people might be. And uh, you read about them in the papers. I don't need to name some of the people who've got... Uh, into the news even this past week. And that is what Jesus is saying. Well, so much by way of introduction. Now, for our first heading and uh, essential facts, there are two of these that I want to, to draw your attention to. The first is in verses 25 to uh, 26. Uh, there Jesus tells us that living the living and true God, whom he calls Father, Lord of heaven and earth, is a God who communicates with us. He is a communicating God. Look at verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Note that word revealed. For our God is a revealing or communicating God. And there are two forms of that revealing or communication. Uh, first, there are truths about God revealed in the created order around us. I heard a marine biologist say recently that the aquatic world is so marvelous that you cannot believe it is just an accident. Uh, there must be a God somewhere behind it. And it was Sir Fred Hoyle, the great astronomer, but not a believer, who had the honesty to oppose those who spoke of blind charts as uh, ultimately responsible for this wonderful world and universe. 
Uh, he said they were like those who suggest a tornado sweeping through a scrapyard could assemble a jumbo jet from all the junk lying around. The Bible certainly says that creation points to God. As we heard in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. And the Apostle Paul echoes that in uh, the first chapter of Romans, verse 20. Uh, yes, God reveals truth about his reality through the created order. He also reveals some basic truths about right and wrong through the human conscience. Paul tells you about that in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. Now, the theologians say all this is God's general revelation. Uh, it's God revealing factual and moral truth generally for everybody, whether they believe or don't. But such is the way with human beings that they can ignore this revelation uh, as it concerns himself and his will. So they turn their backs on God and away from the light of his truth. And then they are in the dark and spiritually blind. Also, turning away from God means you become spiritually deaf. That can be through the huge noise of uh, all these uh, current competing ideologies and religions. But the good news is that God, in his mercy, offers people new eyes to see the truth, as it were, and new ears to hear what he says, and new hearts to receive it and then act on it. This is what God does by his Holy Spirit through this second form of revelation or communication. And the, the theologians call this special revelation. While general, general revelation comes through God's created order, special revelation comes through God's grace. Uh, and it's about God acting in history to save men and women from the mess they're in through turning their backs on him. Uh, this saving work started with uh, his people, the Jews. You read about that, of course, in the Old Testament. And its completion through Jesus Christ, it, you read about that in the New Testament. For Christ is God's supreme communication. He's the focus and the center of God's special revelation. So this special revelation uh, about the saving work of God you read about in the Bible. But then it moves, to, it needs to move from the head to the heart. It needs to become real to the individuals and communities in every generation that uh, hear it. And this happens as God the Holy Spirit opens people's hearts, that's their personality, the real them, to receive God's saving truth and then to live and uh, work for Jesus Christ. Well, all this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 27 here, where he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the first essential fact to grasp is that our God is a God who reveals truth to all generally, but especially to some through Christ and uh, that special revelation. The second essential fact, according to Jesus here, is that for God to work in your life, you need to be humble uh, rather than clever. Jesus says in verse 25, God has hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now, I came across uh, an atheist professor of English recently, who in, in his 50s became a Christian. Uh, he said his old belief was, as he puts it, like that of the villainous Edmund in uh, King Lear. Some of you may have studied that. Uh, for Edmund declares, thou nature art my goddess, to thy law my services are bound. Now that is Shakespeare's brilliant way 
of uh, summarizing secular scientific naturalism, the belief, sadly, of uh, millions in the West today. But this professor then saw how arrogant his and other people's atheism was. He mentioned people like Dawkins and uh, of an earlier generation, Bertrand Russell. And he quoted Russell saying, when I come to my own beliefs, I find myself quite unable to discern any purpose in this universe and still more unable to wish to discern one. And the professor said in response, as if that non-discernment by his own soul self was sufficient for his sweeping, voluminous irrever ir ir irreverence. Uh, and he began to notice that such people, uh, all of these, the, uh, of, of the type of Russell and Dawkins, all, as he put it, lacked the whisper of self-doubt. But this, or humility, is so necessary says Jesus, for true faith in him. He says, to receive God's revelation of truth, you need to be not childish, but childlike, and not thinking you know it all. And actually, um, in some ways, that's the theme of this month's Coloured Supplement, so do read that when you get home. And before we move on, let me just quote G.K. Chesterton uh, on uh, humility in the wrong place. He wrote, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has now been exactly reversed. Well, we must move on, uh, as I say, secondly, to the person of Christ, our second uh, uh, heading. Look at verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father, says Jesus. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to uh, reveal him. Uh, now, this is an amazing statement. Uh, first, it says that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord over all, uh, for all things have been committed to me by my Father. Last June for our Jubilee Celebration service, we showed here a video of uh, significant clips from the Queen's uh, original co coronation. And uh, there was that one of the Queen receiving the orb, one of the crown jewels. And we saw the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Fisher, present it to her with these words. Receive this orb set under the cross. And remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Redeemer. Now that was simply echoing the Bible's teaching on Christ's sovereignty. And this sovereignty was confirmed when God the Father, this is St. Paul, Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one that is to come. So Jesus says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. And he uh, says later on in Matthew's Gospel, when you come to the end of it, chapter 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And that's very important because Christ's authority is over the whole of life. And it's over everywhere. And uh, it means that you ought, therefore, to go out and help as you can uh, others learn about and obey him in the wider world. And that does include 
in your hospital, in your clinic, in your school, in your business, in your college, your university, wherever you are, your law firm, the courts, the government, local government, uh, wherever you, you are and go, as well as with your family, uh, we need to be sharing this reality that Christ is indeed Lord over all. That is simply a matter of fact. So that's the, uh, uh, the, 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 so that is Christ as being the sovereign Lord of all. Secondly, he is the second person of the divine trinity. Now this is the reality behind the words in verse 27, which say, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. The Trinity is uh, a mystery, but it's true. So Jesus says regarding making disciples, in that verse I've just quoted, Matthew 28, and uh, continuing on that verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, and he continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, the Coloured Supplement last month uh, dealt with the Trinity. You can look at that again on the church website if you want to find uh, something on that. But all I'll say now about the Trinity um, uh, is that that doctrine with the church's creedal statements uh, about the Trinity and the statements about Christ and his nature and person are simply what wise, faithful Christians down the centuries have seen is, in fact, the teaching of the Bible insofar as you can express it. This teaches that our God is one God in three persons and Christ is both fully God and fully man. Now the tragedy is that over recent centuries in the West particularly, there's been a sort of dumbing down on the truth about Christ and the person of Christ. Some people in the 17th and 18th centuries um, with a wrong view of science said miracles couldn't ever happen. So they disbelieved in Christ's miracles. Then in the 19th century, belief in evolutionary progress meant that some said Christ was just the most evolved of all religious leaders. He was the best, uh, but not divine. So they then rewrote the Gospels to fit in with these new so-called liberal ideas. However, the dreadful First World, First World War at the beginning of the 20th century meant that a number of theologians realized that uh, evolutionary moral progress was a myth. And the Holocaust in the Second World War confirmed, for all the technological progress, which has obviously been remarkable, um, confirmed that there was further moral decline, not progress. So in significant places, after the Second World War, there was a return to sane theology and biblical studies and a recovery of belief in the Trinity and orthodox belief generally. But sadly, this hasn't percolated through to many of our schools, where so many RE teachers are trapped in 19th century skepticism. And it's made worse because most secular universities now do not teach Christian theology, but uh, only a sort of mishmash of religious studies. So no wonder then that many still treat Christ just as a very good man whose memory needs to be remembered and cherished. They do not treat him as the second person of the divine trinity of the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he really is, uh, and uh, being truly man, but also truly God. But that first Easter, many of you will remember, but uh, you can read it in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas, who knew Jesus was fully man, when he appeared to him, 
with his risen body, knew he also had to say, my Lord and my God. And a little later, Paul said uh, that uh, he, that's Jesus, through the spirit of holiness, was declared, this is Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection, a real resurrection with an empty tomb, declares with power Christ's deity. And thirdly, uh, with regard to the person of Christ, there's a uniqueness about Jesus as well as a finality. This is very important because Jesus has no equals or successors. Look at verse 27 again. This verse makes it clear that Christ's Trinitarian relationship with his Father and how he can be both God and man, as we've said, will be a mystery. For Jesus says no one knows the Son except the Father. But then he stresses his uniqueness as one to reveal the truth in the last part of that verse. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He alone is able to do that. So if you want to know truly God, Christ alone can reveal him to you. But the uniqueness of Christ is not just that he alone reveals truly what God is like. He alone reveals all you need to know about salvation. In Christ you understand that God's infinite holiness and righteousness, but also his infinite uh, love uh, and mercy are there. Now this is at the heart of the cross, where Christ died and alone became the answer to human sin. For there God, the holy and righteous Father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only perfect divine and human son to die in our place bearing our sin and guilt that whoever however imperfect believes in him shall not perish but uh, have eternal life now that's expanded is what john chapter 3 verse 16 is saying christ indeed is unique let me quote john stott on this uh, uh, great uh, theologian and pastor who's died uh, a year or two ago he is unique this is jesus in his incarnation which is quite different from the ahistorical and plural avatars of Hinduism. In his atonement, dying once for all for our sins. In his resurrection, breaking the power of death. And in his gift of the Spirit to indwell and transform us. So that brings us third and finally to our last heading, uh, his invitation. Now the question is, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Uh, as we saw in those previous verses, you cannot say without dire consequences, says Jesus, on the final judgment day, I can't be bothered. But what you need to do, Jesus invites you to do here in these uh, verses 28 and, 20 and 30 to 30. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This invitation of Christ is so simple. So in conclusion, let me explain in just a few sentences five things about that invitation. One, it's addressed to all who are willing to face reality. Uh, it's for all you who are weary and burdened. And if you're honest, that uh, is all of us in some measure. So it's for those who are weary and burdened with the emptiness of life, 
with loneliness, with stress, with worry, with, in that particular context, oppressive, pharisaical religion, with temptation and guilt, and with so many other things. Two, the offer is of rest and rest for your soul through forgiving your guilt and sin. Three, the invitation is so simple. It is to come to Christ and to be willing to learn from him. And that really is faith. Because Christian faith is not only includes believing certain facts, but importantly, it's also coming to Christ in commitment. For the incentive could not be better. For Christ is not like a hard schoolmaster. Christ is not like that at all. For he says here, he is gentle and humble in heart. Now, gentle can mean uh, in the original, not having too much anger, but also not having too little when necessary. So never think Christ is meek and weak. His gentleness is always strong. And five, the consequences of coming to Christ are that uh, instead of a heavy burden, you will have a light burden. Yes, there is a cost in coming to Christ. Ian was talking about this uh, last week. But compared to the cost of not coming, any cost is so light. So repeat, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden uh, is light. And uh, remember those words that uh, Dr. Plummer quoted, that uh, these words, if you understand them, uh, you found your way to the heart of the Christian faith. Let's pray. Remember silent prayer. Uh, can I just say that prayer is basically conversation with God, so God speaks to you through his word, and we have that in the Bible, uh, and you hear you, these words of Jesus speaking. So uh, he speaks to you, and you speak to God in response in prayer. So do respond to this invitation as is appropriate to wherever you're at, uh, as we may say. Uh, for some, you may want to say for the first time, yes, Lord, I come and please teach me to learn from you. So let's pray as is appropriate to where we're at. Moment of silent prayer.